Orange Church is dismissed. Did want to uh, additionally uh, welcome uh, my dear friends Craig Virgin and Karen Fox. Soon to share that last name. We'll make that happen in the not so distant future. But uh, Craig was back um, with uh, the introduction of his um, biography of his running career. And uh, you may have heard in the news uh, his 45 year old state meet record has held. It uh, did not get broken yesterday, some uh, perhaps because of the conditions, but uh, so you still have your old friend with you at least another year. I don't see anyone on the horizon. Um, some say Wilson might be the one to uh, threaten it in the not-so-distant future. That some would be me, just by the way, okay? <laughs> but Craig, I have to tell you a funny story. We were in this tent that we kind of used yesterday at the state meeting. By the way, my voice is about gone from yelling as well as whatever's been happening to everybody with their, you know, colds or whatever. But I was in this uh, tent with my buddy Craig Bauer and this fellow alumni who was the doctor. You, uh, you talked to him later. He, he came in and he hadn't seen Craig for quite some time and he didn't know who I was and he was very, he's older than me. He graduated from the U of I in, I think, uh, 77, he said, I think. Um, so he looked at me and he looked at this other fellow, and I had a hat on, so, and I know I'm looking a little older, but he said, are you Craig's dad? <laughs> Which would, by the way, make me in the 80s, but I'm okay because I've made that mistake before too. Hopefully not with women, but with, with men, but so, so I, I knew exactly, you know, you're disoriented, who are you, why are you here, why should you, so you must be his dad, no, so anyway... So if you have any tips for me on how to stop aging, I would love to, to hear about those. Um, how old is Vernon? 86. Okay, so I'm, I'm almost 56. So I'm, okay, his junior by quite some, some time. But anyway, that's, that's enough about me. Well, this past Tuesday marked a special day. Yes, the great day of gathering candy, right? Parents sending their children out dressed up in costumes in order to gather lots of candy for the parents, right? But Tuesday also marked the 500th anniversary of the launching of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, not King, Martin Luther, stop. A Catholic priest in Germany nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. What began simply as an internal protest against the Pope's encouragement of the selling of indulgences, uh, notes issued by the Catholic Church certifying forgiveness for oneself or loved ones for an amount of money, money, that beginning ended in a reformation of Christianity and a recovery of the biblical teaching of salvation 
the salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen. That is a good place for an amen. My purpose this morning is not to give to you the history of the Protestant Reformation, but I will remind you that we sit here in this church and not another type of church because of that. Up until uh, the 1500s, the Catholic Church was the church. It was all that there was. But my ambition this morning is to take you to the text that we read for our Scripture reading, a passage of Scripture that I want to use to teach you about the sola, that is the alone in, in the Latin, the sola that is Christ alone, or solus Christus, which is on the back of your bulletin where there is an outline for you to follow along. And we're going to deal with this passage of Scripture from the book of Romans that is used for generally for faith alone, but it could also be used for grace alone, as well as God's glory alone, and possibly even Scripture alone. And the reason that that is the case is because these solas, these alones that uh, marked the reformation of the church of Jesus Christ, are so intertwined. They are nearly inseparable. Although we will this morning separate to solus Christus, Christ alone, I want you to get into the mindset this morning by reminding you of a parable, a story that Jesus taught. It's told in the Gospel of Luke. And right at the beginning, Luke gives us the key to understanding the story. Luke says that Jesus told a parable, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does that word righteous mean? It's an important word. Essentially, it means to have a right standing before God. To have a right standing with God. To be welcomed into His presence and considered one of His own. So, Jesus told this story to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were right before God, and, Luke says, viewed others with contempt. That word righteous in the context of the Bible means right with God. So Jesus told this story to some who trusted in themselves that they were right with God and viewed others with contempt. Those others being people that they did not think were right with God. Anytime a person, listen, anytime a person trusts in themselves that they are right with God, it means they have come up with a formula of do's and don'ts, of works that will get them to heaven. And they view those who don't follow their own formula with contempt. That formula approach to salvation is what we call a works-based salvation. It is a different gospel than the gospel of the Bible that the Bible proclaims, and it it damns a person to hell if they believe it and if they propagate it, if they further it. There is no other way to say that. I know that that seems harsh, but it is important to say it because 
That approach to God is based on a blindness to one's own sinfulness, a blindness to God's holiness, and a blindness to the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. To those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked, with other, looked upon others with contempt, Jesus said this. He said, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee or a religious leader who trusted in himself that he was right with God in his own works. The other was a tax collector or what the Pharisees called a sinner. That tax collector had really sided more with Rome than with Israel. They were Jews, but they had sided more with Rome. They had gotten a franchise, a... Uh, what, what, what's the block? What, what is the tax franchise you can get? H&R Block? Franchise. They got authorization to collect taxes for Rome and to collect more for themselves. So they were extorting their own people on behalf of Rome. They were one of the most hated people in Israel. And so this tax collector comes into the temple in Jesus' story at the same time. And the Pharisee stood up, Jesus said, and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. That means I go without food in order to show God, I am so serious about my prayers that He would answer them, and I'm so spiritual. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, Jesus said, was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified with God, by God, rather than the other. The one who could not even look up to heaven, who could only cry out to God for mercy, was the one whom God heard and stated was right with him in his presence. This one, Jesus said, who was trusting in himself, went away empty. right with God, simply for humbling Himself, recognizing His deep state of sinfulness, His inability before God. No works of penance, no fasting twice a week, no tithe, which those things are good things. But only dependence upon God, which exalts God, not the tax collector. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Where did the time go? I have 15 minutes. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Okay, let's get going. As Kevin Souter would say, I'm going to talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast, okay? So there's two things I want to do this morning. The first is to preach this text that allows me to teach you or remind you that salvation is found in Christ alone, no other path. The second is to recognize the persecution that comes about by believing our message. 
What is so offensive about proclaiming a free offer from God of forgiveness and eternal life? Have you ever thought about that? You believe it, and you can't imagine that people would hate you for believing it, not no less telling them. Well, I chose Romans three twenty one through thirty one, a text I felt addressed the issue of the Reformation. But I asked myself of the text as I read it, as I meditated on the passage. Are there answers in this text as to why the gospel is offensive? Now, I'm not trying to impress you, okay? And not that you would be impressed, but I'm going to show you something that you're going to think, oh, wow, he's just trying to impress me. I'm not trying to impress you. Okay, as I looked at the passage to see if it held any of the answers to my question, what is so offensive about the gospel? I saw this structure to the passage. I think there might be a slide up ahead if you go... It's got all those, it's got all the mess. Okay, look at that. There's the passage for you. Okay, up, up there on the screen. Now, what I've done is I have tried to pair the verses in this passage that go together. Now, if you look really kind of, just kind of take a bird's eye view back, notice that it kind of goes in and then back out. It looks like half of an X. Scholars call this a chiasm after the Greek letter Chi, which is like our X. And what a chiasm is, is it's a structure, a literary structure, that kind of makes a point, and it finally makes a point in the middle, and that is the key idea, but everything sort of goes along. So you've got reason one at the top and reason one at the bottom, reason two, reason two, and and finally you get to reason five, which is really the main point. That's what this passage does. And each of those points in building gives a reason why the gospel is offensive to the unbeliever. And that's what I want to show you this morning in whatever time is remaining and what time I may borrow against the rest of your day to get this done. Five reasons, I believe. Five reasons by... Uh, five reasons by receiving God's righteousness through faith in Christ alone that is offensive to unbelievers. And there is even some unbelief left in you and I that sometimes gets offended by these aspects. The gospel confronts the unbeliever on a level that strikes at pride. Some harden their hearts to that message. Others take offense, but then soften their hearts to receive these truths. I hope you are those who have or will softened your heart to let Christ be our all in all. And so here's the main idea. I have it written back for you on the back of the bulletin. The righteous, righteousness God requires. In other words, God requires that you be righteous to come into His presence. Now that's a hefty thing to say, except God provides righteousness for you if you are willing to receive it by grace through faith in Christ for His glory according to the Scriptures. This righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is offensive to unbelievers. So, let's look at this structure, but more importantly, let's look at the verses to understand why the gospel is offensive. Why would uh, would believers be killed for proclaiming the gospel, the free offer of God's salvation through faith in His Son? Why would that be offensive enough that Christians would be persecuted or even killed? 
Well, the first reason that I believe, this first reason that we see in this passage on the outer ends of this passage, is that receiving God's righteousness through faith in Christ alone is offensive because it is a dependent righteousness. God requires you have to have a righteousness, and you are dependent upon Him to receive it, to get it, to have it, and that is offensive to the natural man. The Apostle Paul in this letter to the church at Rome has been arguing up to this point in his message in the book of Romans that all of, all of, sin, all of humanity is sinful. That all, and it says it in this passage, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jackie, it is so good to see you. Praise God. Good to see you. I know you're embarrassed now, but I do that every now and then. So, up to this point, this is the argument, and then, but it's as if Paul can anticipate the question a Jew or anyone who espouses the Ten Commandments might ask. But what about the fact that God gave us this legal code to follow? Isn't pleasing God found by trying to keep the Ten Commandments? To which Paul answers, no. And you're like, some of you are even like, what? You like that? What? (laughs) And in verse 21, verse 21, Paul says, the law was given to witness to the righteousness that God requires and also the one who would come to fulfill the, the legal requirements of the law. See, in verse 21, being witnessed, He says, but now apart from the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated or manifested, being witnessed or testified to by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament scriptures gave God's people a picture of God's righteous requirements, and they were an impossible code of ethics to meet. But God also, remember, He gave a provision for the substitutionary sacrifices. Leviticus, okay, if you've sinned, if you've broken my commandments, here's what you do. You get the best of your flock, the best ram, the best lamb, perfect, the one that you would least like to give because it's valuable, and you offer it as a blood sacrifice. You take its life, you shed its blood, you burn its uh, best parts for me and that will make atonement for your sins. God says, I know you can't meet the standards, but because I love you, I will allow you to provide a sacrifice, a substitute to pay the price for your sins, which is death. The the payment, the debt that sin accrues is death. And all this was pointing to the righteous one, Jesus, who would both fulfill God's righteous requirements of the law and be the blood sacrifice on behalf of His people. Jesus said to the religious leaders who trusted themselves that they were righteous and looked at others with contempt, He said, you search the Scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you have eternal life, and they speak of Me, and you will not come to Me. John 5, 39-40. Friends, the gospel is offensive. It is offensive to unbelievers when proclaimed faithfully because it tells 
us that there is a righteousness that you need, but it is outside of yourself, and it is Christ's righteousness, and you must depend on that and not your own efforts. And we must always guard our hearts from beginning by grace, but freely receiving God's righteousness, but then moving to a performance works-based relationship with God. Okay, I did it when I was first born again. I said, man, I know God's really pleased with me now. I'm reading my Bible. I'm getting up early and reading and praying. And man, I know He's way more pleased with me than a lot of other people. You see how that works? That works-based righteousness begins to look with others with contempt. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read more. I'm going to give more. And I'm going to show all these other Christians, that they're just not serious as as I am. Paul told the Galatians, however, that if they transitioned into a works-based relationship with God, they were cutting themselves off from God's grace. Do you realize how great that message is? It's not that God doesn't want you to try, but He never wants you to think that your human efforts are, are the basis of your standing with Him. Our next level of this chiastic structure yields a second reason for why the gospel is offensive to unbelievers. And I'm not sure I really proved to you from that chiasm that that's there, but you'll just have to trust me on the basis of our time here. I can give you a copy later if you want. Anybody, I can make a copy. Just sign up in the back. Okay, I'm going to go on. Okay, our next level yields the second reason why the gospel is offensive to unbelievers, and that is because it drops any distinctions. Receiving God's righteousness through faith in Christ alone is offensive because it is a distinctionless righteousness. Look at verses 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Jews want to say, well, yeah, we've sinned, but not as much as the Gentiles. I mean, they've offered their children as burnt offerings to their gods, and they they have all these sexual orgies for their religious, uh, religious routines, and they're just horrible people. They're bloodthirsty. And God says, yeah, I don't care. I sacrificed my son for them too. Look at verses 29 and 30 in this chiasm. Or is it, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant for the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. There is something in our fallen nature, friends, that wants to be distinct from someone else. The Jews were offended that Jesus' good news was for the prostitutes, the tax collectors. Why? Because they felt that their lives and their effort deserved a distinction. And certainly we want to live lives that are above reproach, but even when we do, we must not resent that God saves those who live, have lived in the gutter. The morally reprehensible, the pedophiles, the adulterers, the thugs, but it can turn the unbeliever off. When they hear that they aren't going to get credit for their efforts in the past, it can turn the world off when we proclaim that God looks at them 
as he looks at the unlovely. Have you ever felt that sense of disgust because you were in a group of people that were way below you? I remember when I broke my foot the summer after my sixth grade year. I had begun the baseball season and was playing great, and I had hopes for the all-star team. Broke my foot playing basketball in the driveway, had a, had a cast for six weeks, got out, played a couple games, and I was expecting to make the A team on the all-star team. I made the B team. I cried and I cried. I don't want to be with those guys. They're no good. I'm better than them. We conclude that that is not a team we want to waste our times with. That is the gospel, my friends. Everyone can play. If they put on a uniform that is provided, they can play. Not the one that they would choose to wear despite the wrong team callers, transition, Jesus taught that only those who humble themselves and adopt a childlike attitude would enter the kingdom, would receive eternal life. And that's the next level of our structure. That is the righteousness that we need to stand in God's presence cannot be attained by human effort. It must be received as a gift and therefore It is humbling. That's the third reason that the gospel that we proclaim will receive persecution, will receive martyrdom, because it is a humbling righteousness. Verse 24 indicates that the only way you are justified or right with God is by receiving His gift by grace, His gift of grace. Unearned, what does grace mean? It means unearned, undeserved favor. That is so humbling. And God intends it to be. Because you see, pride was the undoing of Satan. And pride is the besetting sin of all of humanity. God ought to receive me as I am. And not by diminishing me to the point of telling me that there is nothing I can do that would be good enough to earn His saving favor. But verse 28 kind of destroys that at the bottom part of our chiasm. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you do a study on that Greek word apart, it's really interesting. That Greek word that stands for apart, you know what it means? It means apart. <laughs> Pretty simple. Got to be saved apart from works of the law. It means apart. It means by itself. It means separately. It means without. We cannot get any clearer that salvation is because of Christ alone. Solus Christus. If there is nothing I can do, if it is all by virtue of what Christ has done for me, friends, that is humbling. One of the greatest things about the coming kingdom of God, where Christ rules and We reign with Him. One of the greatest things is that arrogance is absent. There's no pride. Even Christ, the one who is so deserving of boasting, is so humble. In fact, He was so humble that He was willing to lay down His life for those who were not worthy of so great a sacrifice. And you know what? That's offensive to the unbeliever. The next level of our structure yields a fourth reason why receiving God's righteousness through faith in Christ alone is offensive because it is a substitutionary 
righteousness. Verse 25a, whom God, speaking of Christ Jesus in verse 24, whom God publicly displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. There's A. A propitiation. What that means is that the ransom price was paid to remove the wrath. The wrath was not removed without receiving the full ransom price. That's what propitiation means. Now, friends, the reason that this is so offensive to the unbelieving mind is that we have been taught to ignore, we have been taught to overlook, we have been taught not to take into account wrong against us. But that is not what God does. That is not how God works. Our God is holy. Our God cannot overlook an offense. He must deal with it or He is complacent and He is no longer the great God that He is. Instead of overlooking, instead of sweeping under the rug our sins and our offenses against Him and against each other, God places our sins on Jesus. And His Son Jesus went to the cross and paid the debt that we owe. That, my friend, is offensive to unbelievers. They say, that's cosmic child abuse. That's just wrong. That is heavy-handed. God should just lighten up. He should just get over it. It's not that big of a deal. But what those protests forget, what that line of thinking forgets, is God's justice. God is just. We ought to understand that ourselves because we feel the same way at times, right? I don't know about you, but I walked around all week upset at the verdict that Bo Bergdahl got for his treason and treachery overseas. He walked away from his platoon. He walked to the enemy. He cried out to, to find where the enemy was so he could go to them. And I think he had this, this view that, you know, I don't think the Taliban are really that bad. I think we've just made them out to be worse than they are. And he found out that they were that bad. So he comes back, but in, in the midst of trying to find him, men are wounded, men are killed. And he comes back and says, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, he's not sorry. He wasn't sorry. And so they said, well, we're going to give him the time that he served, you know, in captivity over there five years, and it's going to be done. It will give him a dishonorable discharge instead of a court-martial. I'm torqued off. But you know what? I know that God's justice comes out in the end. But the reason I feel upset is because that's the image of God in me that cries out for justice. And, And yet, you know what? I have done so much worse to God. I'm worse than Bo Bergdahl to my God. I've betrayed Him. I've sinned against Him. I've diminished His glory. And God did not simply overlook my sins, which were many. He placed them on His Son, and His Son willingly took them upon Himself because of His great love for me, and He bore my sins in His body on the cross. Friends, the price was fully paid, and I am free. Hallelujah. Are you free 
What a Savior. But that is offensive to those who will not see the depths of their sin, who will not see the height of God's holiness, and no need to span that gap. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the only bridge that brings the sinner and God together. And that brings me to our last reason for Christ alone that is such an offensive message. Why the true gospel launched a reformation and excommunicated Martin Luther. Why? I, I grew up thinking it was because he wanted to get married. He was a priest. He just well, got tired of that celibate life, so let's get married. And, you know, and so let's, let's protest, you know, put some stuff on the door and see if I can get out of this thing. But, but the reason that the gospel, the true gospel, launched the Reformation so offensive to unbelievers is because those who proclaim it and cling to it uh, are persecuted. Why? Because the only one it exalts is God alone. God alone. It is a God-exalting righteousness that the gospel maintains. Uh, this, is, this, this was verse 25b, This was, verse 25b, to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. And now you look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus And God was also righteous. Friends, this is telling you that in the Old Testament, when those faithful ones who had sinned against God offered that blood sacrifice, that animal sacrifice that died on their behalf, God was saying, okay, I'm going to count that as a proxy to what's coming. Do you believe that the one is coming? Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will destroy the work of the the evil one. Yep, and... And I believe that I deserve to die, and here's the sin offering. Okay, okay, I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to the cross. God overlooked the sins previously because He was looking to the cross. Those were a representation of the cross. Now, when a sinner comes to faith, God looks back to the cross as a covering for their sins. And you know who that exalts? Not you, not me. Not the Old Testament saint, but God alone. God alone in that He demanded righteousness and He paid it Himself. This is like the, maybe you've heard this before, young lady goes into the court, the traffic court, got thousands of moving violations. I know, you're thinking, how would she have her license? And she cannot pay the fines that they have accrued. And the righteous judge says, well, I'm sorry, young lady, but you're going to have to pay for these. Bangs the gavel down, takes off the robe, walks around. It's her father, and he pays the fines for her. That is God. That is God. And the unbelieving mind says, well, he should just get over it. No, God says, I'm not going to get over it because I'm willing to pay the fine myself. It is God-exalting. It is not belittling to you and I, but it is God exalting. In fact, it raises those upon whom God has had mercy upon up into the heavenly places and seats them there with Christ Jesus. 
And that's offensive to the believer. The unbeliever, to the unbeliever rather, the unbeliever wants to believe that God rescues us because we are so valuable. But the gospel reminds us that we were ruined, that there was no value in us apart from the value that God determined what a God we have. Friends, we need to continue the Reformation that's 500 years old. And we need to not be afraid of the persecution that it will bring. I believe that God has called me out of darkness to embrace a gospel that uh, called me to depend upon Christ alone. I used to depend on Christ plus me. It taught me that I'm no more worthy than any other. I railed against that. It humbled me so that God could at the future time exalt me. And it reminds me that the sin that brought a debt that I couldn't pay has been purchased, has been paid for when Christ extinguished it. He went to the cross. So I want to remind you of that great gospel verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that summarizes everything that we've said, everything that we could say, when it says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. I want to ask the praise team to come up as we prepare to close and I want to pray not only just God God would take this seed that has been planted in your hearts and take you further in your walk with Christ or begin new life in Christ but as we think about a message that is offensive perhaps it was offensive to us at one time a a message that's offensive to unbelievers We want to prayerfully consider how we might participate with those brothers and sisters far off who are suffering for the name of Christ. And if God would enable you and and, uh, move you to give towards a special offering, we would rejoice. So if the men would come forward to take that now. And I'm going to pray over it and then uh, you can pass. Uh, that plate while the worship team closes in the song and I'll come back and close us with a benediction. Would you bow your heads? Father, we thank you for a glorious gospel. One that does not belittle us, but it exalts you and draws us up with you because you loved us and gave your Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, I pray that we would all leave here knowing for certain that we have eternal life because we believe that Christ has finished the work on our behalf, that there's nothing left. There's no purgatory. There's no works of contrition. But you, when you save us, you do change our hearts. And so we want to live for you. And that's where the good comes from. Help us to get the order right. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Father, we now turn our hearts towards these brothers and sisters, uh, both near and far, who are being, being persecuted. We know our prayer can cover them all. And we pray that this offering, which will cover these action packs, would help some to know that you are loving, that uh, it is, a, it is a, at least a dim light and a dark place that the gospel has not failed them and 
you are still with them. And they have brothers and sisters that are lifting them up. Father, I pray for anyone here today that, a, that might be uh, convicted of their need to receive Jesus Christ and Him alone as their satisfaction for their sins, that they would do that today. And that they would rejoice with us, that they know for certain that they can have eternal life. Father, we pray all of this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.